You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. It seems like a great way to make a little extra money by putting your home on Airbnb while you're away on vacation. But what kind of liabilities do you face doing so? And how can you protect yourself with maybe one easy phone call? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. It also seems pretty simple to self-direct your IRA using a checkbook LLC. But how could one tiny move blow up your entire IRA? Well, our guest today, Eric Nixdorf, is one of the few real estate attorneys in the country who specializes in tax law, bankruptcy, and real estate. He's also a real estate broker and an investor himself. It has been a long time since we spoke, and I always learned so much from him. And since I love getting free legal advice, I thought I'd invite him back to The Real Well Show. So, Eric, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much, Kath. It's great to be here. Well, you are one of those attorneys who can really cover, I don't want to say cover it all, but cover a lot of things that real estate investors need to know because you specialize in tax, bankruptcy, real estate, and you're a licensed real estate broker. So I'm just really honored to have you back here on the show. Thank you very much. Again, it's great to be here. What would you say, I mean, is there anything new that real estate investors should be aware of in terms of tax law? Well, one of the things is new tax reform that went into effect, where in certain businesses, you get to exclude 20% of your income. In some real estate investments, you can take advantage of that. The biggest plus of real estate investing, though, is still in effect, which is your ability to take depreciation deductions, which or a non-cash expense, and against the property, against its earnings, and that allows you to basically get tax-free income coming in on an investment property. And the 1031 exchange laws that are still in effect allow you to trade properties without having to realize the taxes. So you theoretically could buy a piece of property, refinance it, eventually trade it to another property, and if you hold it If you're in a community property state like California and you're a couple and you hold it until one of you passes, the other one gets that property with a stepped-up basis and can basically sell it tax-free. So if you bought it, you know, 20 years ago and you exchanged it and you held it as long as you, you know, until one of you passes, you basically escape taxation on that entire amount of gain. If you're a couple and one of you passes. If you're a couple. Wow. Yes. In a community property state, when one passes, the surviving couple gets a stepped-up basis in the entire property. So where you normally have to pay capital gains, you basically erase those capital gains. That's amazing. I mean, I knew that was true for children or, or anyone who's receiving an inheritance, that if they inherit the property, it steps up to market value and they, they don't have to pay the gain that their parents would have. Uh, but I didn't realize that applied to spouses. Yeah, that's a unique... Uh, rule in community property states, because in in community property states like California, the entire amount of property is considered an interest in the community. So once one passes, you get that stepped up basis just as if you were inherited from a child. So what I tell a lot of real estate investors is when you start, you're really never, ever going to want to sell. You may want to trade and exchange, but unless it's going to be a single family residence that you use to be able to get that exclusion of the 250 or 500 if you're married, your best bet is to hold on to that property as long as you can, refinance it when you need cash, 
and you know, then sell it once you get that stepped-up basis tax-free. Now, we put our home on the market, and we got a bunch of offers, which was great. We had one of the buyers was selling their home in Northern California, but they had to buy something of the same or less value in order to keep the property taxes the same. I, I believe is that Prop 60? Yeah, depending on certain attributes of your age, et cetera, there are some ways to keep the property tax reassessments. And for those types of issues, it is important, especially if you have children, et cetera, because you can pass the benefit of keeping the property taxes at a certain level. Um, and there's, there's typically age restrictions. I mean, the idea that these went into effect was they didn't want senior citizens basically getting pushed out of their properties solely because of the real estate taxes. So that is something you want to look at, depending on your age, is when I go to sell this property, if I'm planning on buying another one, is there a way I can keep my property tax level at the same? Because that would be a consideration uh, when you're looking to replace the property. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating because they, they could sell from high-priced uh, San Francisco Bay Area and actually move to Malibu and get a lower-priced house because San Francisco is so expensive these days. But because it was less expensive in Malibu, they could pay the same property taxes they were paying in San Francisco. And if they bought the property 20 years ago and they were on a really low tax base, you know, obviously they wouldn't want to move out if they'd lose that. Yeah, any, whenever you're looking at purchasing and investing, whether it's a residence or a rental property, it's real important to look at the municipal rules and some places will have these special tax assessments. They'll have certain rules of who you can rent to, how much the increases can be, you know, especially a place like San Francisco. And the further you go away from where you are, I mean, the more research you have to do because the rules, what you may be used to here in California, could be completely different in, in, in states, uh, particularly in the South and on, on the East Coast, uh, because those systems, the real estate systems developed hundreds of years, you know, a hundred years before some of these places were even states. Where California, it, it, you know, tends to be a completely separate system along with the West Coast uh, to, compared to how things go, say, in New Jersey or one of the, the 13 original states. Yeah, so if, if people want to learn more about that, it's Prop 6090, uh, which basically uh, allows people who are over 55 to transfer their property tax base, which is a really big deal if you live in California. But we decided not to sell the property because we found out that there was a huge Airbnb market in Malibu. So we decided we'd rather keep it. And especially when we spoke with our accountant and found out that any personal property that we buy for this business, which is basically a short-term rental business, let's say we completely furnish it, uh, we can bonus depreciate it, right? Can you explain that more, how that would work? If What could we write off? with that 100% write-off in one year if we turn our, our home into an Airbnb? So a couple of things. First, with this new tax reform, that's another great point. They extended the special depreciation rules. This only applies for the federal taxes. But what you've said is essentially true. You're able to, to expense uh, certain investment property. So for example, you're furnishing your rental business in a short-term rental business as opposed to taking it over time. Um, now, you have to be careful because there are other rules called passive loss rules where if you're going to generate a, a negative, basically what would be a tax deduction on a passive investment, 
you basically have to wait to, to claim those later. But if you're going to have a high-income property, um, that is, is a great, the, these new uh, depreciation rules that allow you to expense it like you would a repair cost as opposed to, you know, 27 and a half years or uh, five, five years. So basically how depreciation works is there's basically a table you look at for the type of asset it is you're buying and you're able to expense it over a certain amount of time. Uh, so like if you buy a rental property, it's 27 and a half years. And you're basically taking a 20, you know, 27.5 off the basis in the building, let's say, and you get that straight deduction every year to offset your income. And then when you go to sell it, though, you're, you're going to recapture that depreciation. And so you don't escape the tax, um, but you get a deferment uh, up until when you sell it. And as we've talked about earlier, if you do a 1031 exchange and just keep holding on to it, you're, you're never going to pay that tax. Uh, but I will say there's one thing you have to be very careful about with these Airbnb rentals, and that is if you have a tenant or someone you're renting out to that stays over a certain amount of time, and typically in California it's 30 days, they get basically tenant rights. And rather than easily be able to get them out, you're going to need to get an eviction lawyer. And I've heard horror stories where you know people end up two, three months. So it's very important that you keep that as a short-term rental and, and, and get the people out before you know, they're considered a long-term tenant. That's funny you say that. Uh, my daughter put her home on Airbnb because she lives in Chico. And after the fires, there was just tremendous demand of families who, who needed a home. And she thought, well, this is a good chance to go travel. So she was able to Airbnb her home and made a lot of money doing that. But one family decided to stay five months. And I literally woke up in the middle of the night, one night in a panic, because I thought, oh boy, as her mother, I didn't mentor her well. I didn't tell her that she probably doesn't have the right lease agreement in place. And they, now they have tenant rights and she may never be able to get them out. They could, they could file bankruptcy and never leave. And anyway, it, it all worked out and she's fine. But yeah, that is important to understand that after 30 days, they, you know, make sure you've got the right lease agreement and the right things in place to be able to evict them if you need to. Yeah, and again, with the, the Airbnb era, you see a lot of folks that are renting out their homes while they go on vacation somewhere. And you have to be very careful from a tax perspective because um, those rules can be really tricky. You're able for a very short term to rent your house basically out for free without paying any taxes on it. But after you go over a certain certain number of days, then you're, you're going to have real potential tax issues. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, forget to even report that income. And, you know, there you really can run into issues, especially with, with these services can get subpoenaed or summoned by the IRS to, to see what records and who has paid what. So before you start renting your house, you're going to want to talk to a CPA or a tax attorney like myself and just make sure you know what the rules are and keep your calendars of how often you're renting it out, how many days you're using the property, uh, because those could come into play if you're audited. Um, the other issue, questions we get when with renting out properties, why use an LLC rather than yourself, just having it in your name? And because of the potential liability, you know, I always tell where, where possible, try and put a property in an LLC from the beginning, and not rather in your name, because even if you have the best insurance in the world, there are certain things insurance won't cover. 
And if you face one of those losses and you own it personally, you could put everything you own at risk. Um, whereas the simple way to avoid that is set up an LLC and that way all your contracts, your leases, everything is in the LLC's name. So if you get in a dispute with a tenant, it's not you being sued or having to sue, it's an LLC. And, and the only thing that's going to be at risk is the LLC's assets as opposed to your credit, your personal assets. Um, so that is something to keep in mind. But how would you get financing for that? I, I suppose you'd have to go to a portfolio lender. No, um, it depends on the lending institution. But with a, an LLC, when it's just you owning it, is, is something called a disregarded entity for tax purposes. So if, if I own property in an LLC and it's just the only owners are myself or myself and my spouse, when we file tax returns, there's no LLC return. It just goes on my personal return. So a lot of the banks understand this. It's similar to having it in a trust. Uh, some banks will make you take it out of the trust to get the refinance um, and then put it back in. But other traditional lenders you know, are okay with it. Now, if you're going to have multiple owners, then you're, you're probably going to need to go to a more sophisticated lending. Um, but for just a single family residence, you know, banks are used to that now. Um, it's better to have it from the LLC from the beginning, but you know you can buy it and then later put it in the LLC. Um, just check with your bank before you even take the loan to make sure that you would be allowed to do that without triggering a due on sale clause. Uh, but you're not selling the property, you're just contributing to your LLC, which then you own. And what that does is just give you a layer of protection that if, God forbid, something happens on that property, you're not personally nor your personal assets are at risk. Okay, good to know. And what, what I will add to that is, you know, people ask, well, what is it that can happen that insurance is not going to cover? And there's three main areas. The one is an earthquake, although now in California, the earthquake insurance rates have come way down. So I would encourage people that in the past turned away from getting it because of the really high deductibles and crazy premiums. Um, there's now a public-private partnership in California, and the earthquake insurance rates are generally very reasonable with a reasonable amount of deductibles, um, which that's changed in the last two years. Oh, that's so important. I mean, just having lived through wildfires, uh, there were people who were not properly insured, and they're really hurting. And those who were well-insured just got a big fat check. But I heard that 80% of Californians do not have earthquake insurance. And, you know, we know one is coming, so... No, well, you know, when I talk to people that you know consult with me, they're they're not they're not aware that the rates have come down so much um, because it used to be purely private insurance companies, and now in California there's a there's this public private partnership. Um, there is some questions about the funding of it, and should there be one an earthquake that is devastating across the state. There could be some some payout issues, but provided that it's a localized earthquake, you know, I think it, it's it's probably worth it. But for example, another issue that we see are is are mold problems, and most uh, insurance policies now will not cover mold. You should check to see if it is. Try and get a policy that will cover mold, because you have any kind of a mold issue, and it could be claims of you know six figures from someone that you know claims that they were injured from inhaling mold. Oh, wow. Okay. And then the last thing to keep an eye out is, is what we call intentional torts. 
most insurance companies will defend you, but they won't pay punitive damages if there's any. And you'd say, well, I own real estate. You know, I'm not, what could I possibly do that would be an intentional tort? And, and you would be surprised. I mean, I'll give you an example. Let's say that you have a tenant that has a, a dog and the dog ends up biting someone and causing you know, severe injuries. If you had knowledge of the dog and any knowledge that it could be a dangerous dog, you could be looking at an intentional tort claim uh, mm. with punitive damages. Um, so, you know, it's just important to talk to your insurance company and just ask straight out at your agent, what can happen that's not covered here? Yeah. And, uh, and then think about ways to, to mitigate those. So, for example, you're going to have a pet. You're going to allow pets, have your tenant, make sure they have a pet policy and put yourself as an additional insured. Um, that way, um, you know there's a policy in, in place in case something happens. So your tenant, your tenant should have a, an insurance policy for their pet? Yes. What I recommend to clients when they're renting out property is I, as a condition of the rental, and again, other states, there may be issues with this, but in California, it's perfectly fine to require your tenant to have renter's insurance. You can also require that that renter's insurance list you as an additional insured so that if you could file a claim against the tenant's policy yourself without having to wait for the tenant. And as part of that, you make sure that they have a pet rider that, you know, that covers, if they're going to have pets, that there's special insurance, you know, of an amount that you feel comfortable with. Oh, that's great. That's such great advice. Now, it, you know, for people doing the Airbnb thing, like you said, maybe just renting it out while they're on vacation, do they need to inform their insurance company of that? I would check with your policy and check with your insurance agent mm -hmm. because most policies do allow that because it is, it's, it's becoming a popular you know, thing that we see now, but the, but the policies can really vary and some may require you to get a rider and it's just one phone call and you know, they can get that insurance in place quickly. But if you don't ask, that can be an issue. It, it's the same as someone's working on your house. Most insurance policies now will provide, uh, a, if there, someone gets injured, say you hired a contractor to do work on your house and, and they try and do a, a worker's compensation claim against you. Uh, most of the homeowner policies and, and landlord policies now will cover that, but that is something that you want to ask. Um, you know, before you go down the investor road, you want to be covered and get those questions answered because you, know, you don't want to be paying these insurance premiums and then find out something's not going to be covered that you could have covered with a phone call. Wow. Uh, I'm curious. We had uh, one of our real wealth people in, in Australia, and I wouldn't, they're no longer members, but they tried to sue me, or I should say Real Wealth Network, and one of our affiliates because the rent didn't come in at what they thought it would or what the affiliate had told them it would. Now, I've told and instructed all of our affiliates, make sure you send people to a link so that they can do their own research, you know, a public rental site to find out what rents are and give a range. But anyway, this lawsuit, uh, they, they lost uh, the claim against us, but it cost a lot of money just to defend ourselves, even though the judge ended up swearing at the, at the plaintiff saying it was the most ridiculous case, but it still cost us a bunch of money to defend. What kind of policy could we have had in place that might have covered those costs? 
you know that's that's a that's a tough one because you you basically need to have some like a business liability policy so to the extent that you're you're running a business you would want claims against you committing you know being alleged to being negligent but again most insurance claims will not cover you against an intentional tort so if you're accused of committing fraud typically that won't be covered by any insurance they'll defend you They'll pay for your defense, but they won't pay for the claim. In a lot of cases, the defense is all you need. Yeah. But you know that would be more of a business policy um, that you would get. A, you know, a typical uh, policy protecting a landlord would not cover that. But if you're in the business of of doing this, you would want to talk to an insurance agent and say, you know, look, you know, I, I want to prevent these kind of claims or at least have insurance against it. Um, well, what do you offer? But there are those types of policies, but they they can be expensive. I mean, the main thing in any transaction is document and have in writing exactly, you know, what you're representing and what you're not. And, it, you know, but, but the problem is when people lose money or things don't go well, they sometimes feel they have nothing to lose. And, you know, it, it, it becomes a cost of doing business and you have to factor that in. Well, it cost them over $100,000 just to lose the case. But I think, I think they got poor legal advice. And the attorney probably told them they would get a bunch of money from us. And, um, you know, there's always attorneys out there that that uh, will make a lawsuit out of it, anything. So and, and I, anyway, you know, that that's something that could have been easily resolved. But I think they just got greedy and were hoping to to get into our pockets. But anyway, that's, that's, I think, you know, people can sue for any reason, and there is the cost to defend. So why not have insurance in place for those things? And And the great thing about being a landlord is there are so many policies available for landlords. Yeah, and again, a secondary protection is, you know, don't be selling property or renting out property in your own name. Have it in an mm-hmm. LLC, yeah. you know, so that um, when, if and when there's a lawsuit, you know, you have some protection that it won't be against you. Now, there are ways to get around that. Attorneys will find, but the more layers of protection you have, the better. Rather than put five pieces of property in one LLC, you would want to have an LLC for every piece of property so that if you ever have a problem, that the, the, the piece of property that has the issue is the only one that's at risk, not whatever you, else you may have in your portfolio. Well, the frustrating thing about that is what you said earlier, the $800 per LLC California fee, but maybe there is a way around that. Yeah. The, if you look at the rules, what California did was they, they basically say, if you're doing business in California you have to pay an $800 fee. And they have an example in their, in their forms that say, well, the example they use is someone that owns property in Nevada in an LLC. They're the managing member of the LLC and they live in California. Even though that they have a property manager who handles everything, that because they're the managing member of the LLC and they do business, they're in California, that, that qualifies. And, and they, they cite a couple examples they're very aggressive trying to get as much money as they can. Um, and they, they've lost in court a number of times. So there are certain things you can try to get around that. You don't have the bank account in California. You don't actually do any of the management while you're in California. Um, but you know, imagine a rule that a company that has no contacts at all in California, but has an employee driving through the state that makes a phone call um, does that somehow make them doing business in California? I mean, the, the, the state would probably take the position that, yes, it is. 
but I, I think a judge would, you know, would throw that out and say, I mean, you know, one phone call that's made from the state is, you know, should not count as doing business here. Um, but, it, you know, it is something to keep in mind. And, you know, the, the conservative approach is just pay the $800. Um, but there are some, some ways, if, if you limit what you do here to get around that, um, because over 10 years, that, that tends to add up. Okay. Um, something you mentioned offline before the call was some of these checkbook LLCs for your self-directed IRA. I see a lot of companies offering that. It's always been a little concerning to me because, you know, there's a lot to understand and make sure you do right. But what are your thoughts on the checkbook LLCs for for self-directed IRAs? So the problem I see is that the companies that promote these they make it look as if this is a completely settled area of law that you don't have any risk. And I guess we should back up and, and, and basically what, what these are marketed as is you take your IRA funds and you invest in an LLC that, that all, then invests in real estate and you become the manager of the LLC and you basically manage the LLC yourself for your IRA. But the rules regarding this are actually very, it's very dangerous uh, because you are not a lot. You're, for example, let's assume that you invested, uh, you did everything proper. You had your IRA uh, purchased an LLC interest and you got a rental property and some repairs needed done. And you went and did them, you, you, you painted a wall or you put in a new lock. The fact that you did that, you contributed a service would under the IRS rules, render the entire IRA as being distributed, and you'd have to pay tax on your entire IRA. Um, there are certain things that the regulations will allow you to do, um, but any, as a general rule, any, you can't provide any services, you can't pay any expenses. There has to be a total separation between um, the IRA investment and your contact with it. Let's say you have an LLC bank account and you withdraw money and you use it personally, that can make your entire IRA now taxable. And you know what you will hear from IRS auditors is every single one of these self-directed IRA investments in, into like an LLC, it would be, they could find something to make the whole thing taxable. And uh, I, my concern is at some point as this becomes more and more popular, the IRS is gonna start scrutinizing it because it could become a big source of revenue. And if that would happen, you know, for the amount out there, it, it just could cost people an enormous amount of taxes. So just be very careful before you look into, you know, you decide to do it. It can be a worthwhile investment, but look at the rules very, very carefully. Yeah, it just, it just makes no sense to me. It's like you're supposed to be arm's length. And how can you be if, you're, if it's you writing the check, regardless of whether it's in an entity or not? I, I mean, do you have any concerns with it being through, with doing a self-directed IRA through a custodian? Well, the more you have someone else doing it, not you, the better you are, better off you are. I mean, so if, if, if you're going to have an IRA and you're going to have someone else manage it, you know, but again, the, it, it's, a, it's this whole conflict between control and liability. I mean, the more you have a third party involved, the more risk you have of, you know, being a victim of fraud or negligence or, and the more control you have, the more you know what's going on. So, I mean, I see both sides of it. I do think you can thread the needle 
Um, you just have to take the time. And before you jump in, you want to make sure you understand what all the rules are. I mean, there there is lots of literature out there, but don't just take a promoter's word of how easy something is. I mean, make sure you research it. You know, worst case, have a consultation with a tax attorney like myself, you know, where we see this all the time. We see what the audit risks are and we announce a prevention. It really, when it comes to tax law, especially with these IRAs where one $100 mistake can cost you the entire value of your IRA, um, it's just, you just have to be careful. I mean, but, you know, life is risky. Um, Generally, you know, risk is rewarded. And you just have to be smart about it. Mm, very good. Okay, well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I think I could just talk to you forever. But we'll just have to have you back. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Kathy. And congratulations. You've grown tremendously over the last, uh, these last years. Ten years. I, we met you ten years ago. You helped us through some difficult times in the downturn. And, um, you know, I'm glad, I think thanks to you, we were able to bounce back over the past 10 years. So thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks again. It was great talking to you. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. Hopefully you can join us on August 13th in San Mateo and August 14th in LA for our upcoming live event where I'll be giving my mid-year housing report. And we've also invited property managers and property teams from Florida and Texas to show us what's going on in their markets and brand new and fully renovated properties that are available in their markets. You can check that out at realwealthshow.com. It's a free event, but you do need to be a member. So just register. It's free. And I hope to see you there. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.